Turn, please, this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Not that it matters where I'm a, just a couple of weeks behind where I, I thought I would be. Uh, we had, of course, a Sunday that we didn't have services, and then kind of unexpectedly I was gone on the 31st. I usually <clears throat> try to, at the beginning of the year, deal with kind of bigger picture issues and large Christian concept issues. And I want to turn our attention now, beginning this morning and out for the next few weeks, along the lines of the greatness of our salvation, the, the preacher in Hebrews calls it a great salvation. And so we will explore a little bit of that, but we start as we always must start with more along the lines of the unpleasant news than the pleasant news. Let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. We're going to read into verse number 21, which is the entirety of the chapter today, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And in the point he's making, we don't see this. We just know this because God tells it to be true. We are confident, verse number 8, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We, there, wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to the hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, Yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the word unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And let's pray. Father, it is indeed a great salvation, and I pray that our appreciation of it would always be growing, that our understanding of it would always be increasing, and that its glories would ever be more revealed in our lives until every thought, every imagination, every word in every believer is a pure reflection of Christ. Make it so we ask in his name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, we know that Paul wrote, we know that Paul started this church. You can read about that in the book of Acts in the 18th chapter. We know that he wrote at least three letters to this church, possibly four. We know that two of them are recorded for us as part of the inspired record. They are not simply Paul's writings, but breathed out by God through Paul. We know that this was a very blessed church, that it possessed all of the necessary elements to be a great church. He told them in 1 Corinthians that they had come behind in no gift, that there was no church that fell behind the Corinthians in its spiritual giftedness and ability to serve. And Corinthians becomes, as I suppose is true in every one of the letters, but Corinthians specifically becomes a template for every church. And again, at the risk of repeating myself on and on, that is a critically important thing to understand about Corinthians in light of the way it is so abused in contemporary culture. Because Corinthians deals with some of the hottest issues in modern theology, like the ordination of women to ministry. And the argument invariably falls along the line, well, that was what Paul said to the Corinthians, but that was the Corinthians and their culture, and it's not for us. Five times, five times in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, what I'm saying to you, I say to everybody. What I mean for you, I mean for everybody. No church ever at any time is exempt from what Paul addresses in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And yet Paul's relationship with this church is very troubled. And although he is the man who comes and brings to them the gospel, and they have never heard the gospel, When Paul comes, these are completely uninitiated people. And he preaches to them about Christ and his righteousness and salvation and God's grace and they are saved. It isn't long until they come to the conclusion that Paul is more of a detriment than a help. And the whole 
series, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are flavored by this underlying tension. Paul is actually addressing it a little bit in this passage when he talks in verse number 12 about those who glory in appearance. And it is in Corinthians that we know, learn a couple of things about Paul. One is that his appearance was not very much to look at. Nobody went to hear Paul preach because of his personal appearance. And nobody went to hear Paul preach because of his dynamic delivery. We know that from Corinthians. Paul was far from a very interesting, compelling preacher, the kind of people who are so often popular in pulpits today. But they have all the gifts. They have all of the abilities. They have all of the resources. And yet it is a church that seems to be afflicted with one epic disaster after another. It's, it's almost written like a bad movie script. Carnal worldliness is the basic condition of the church from the top down with everybody in competition for their spiritual ranking according to their spiritual guru. Immorality is not only tolerated but celebrated. Lawsuits against other believers are perpetrated. The members have no respect or little respect for each other as is evidenced by the horrific way in which they practice the Lord's Supper and the way they treat each other with reference to their spiritual gifts. And this great apostle finds himself disregarded, disrespected, having to resort to something he is really very reluctant to use, his raw, unadulterated apostolic power. And in this chapter, Paul touches upon, I think, I propose to you, in one sentence, the heart of all of these problems. And it is the reason that we all need to be saved. The heart of the problem is this. This is where we will begin this morning in verse number 15. That he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The heart of the problem, folks, is that we all live for ourselves. However many of us there are, we are born living for ourself. Paul here is not pointing out that they are aware of themselves. Of course we are aware of ourselves. We, there is a sense in which we can think of nothing but ourselves throughout much of the day. We are breathing. We are the one who is eating. We are the one who is talking. We are the one who is hearing. We are constantly aware. We drive, we walk, we move. That's not what Paul is concerned about. Paul is making the observation that the very core of the gospel is an alteration in our orientation. That we stop living for ourselves and live for the one who died for us. We all live ourselves. Let me just kind of pose the question to the text. Is that a true statement? 
Do we really just live for ourselves? Is that our native state? Well, let me ask you this question. Let's just confine ourselves at the beginning to the text of Corinthians. Here's a man who is engaged in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. Is that not living for himself? Is not his own self-interest and his own pleasure at the heart of it? I mean, let's, right, let's just, let's just, and I know that there's a sense in which we can't and a sense in which we should not. It is a sin. It is a sin against God. But, but let's just stop there. Right? Let's just put that in a box and set it off on one side of the table. What about his dad? What about his dad? What about his family and his relatives? Here's a man engaged in a physical relationship with, at the very least, his stepmother. We've talked about this there. You, you could maybe make it his mother, but it's probably, and I've kind of changed, I think it's probably with his stepmother, but okay. What about all of the other people that are impacted by that? I hope, but, I, but I, I know otherwise, but I would hope that this is not true. What about, what about the impact of infidelity in your family? Who who has been impacted by a person's infidelity does not view it as an incredible act of selfishness. We live for ourselves. Or what about this? What about suing a brother over a matter of finances? Is that not selfish? Is that not, I mean, you could ask, I, I, would, I would make the argument, folks, that kind of fundamental to the whole issue of giving is that it puts its finger on one of our biggest areas of selfishness, finances. I mean, it really isn't like God is in need of money. But there is something to salvation. There is something about salvation that they which live should henceforth not live for themselves. Or what about this? When you get into 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, the shameful way that the Corinthians talked to each other and talked about each other with reference to their spiritual giftedness. Is that not selfishness? To exalt, right? To, to completely ignore and gloss over the cardinal Bible doctrine that every man is of equal sinfulness to need salvation, to pass over that, and to think that we are somehow spiritually supreme because we have a gift that God didn't give another. Is this perhaps not what Jesus was touching on when he rebuked the Pharisees for loving the public prominence of their religious position? You love the robes. You love the greetings. You love the honor that comes with being the rabbi of getting the premier seats. 
Or we could pose the question this way, is this not the exact opposite of the way our Savior lived? John 8, 29. I always do the things that please my Father. Flip it on its head. I do not live for myself. I always do the things that please my Father. Not my will but thine be done. Because I don't live for myself. I think that this is one of the reasons that Paul had such great fondness for Timothy. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded, literally with the same soul, who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Everybody is inclined to live for themselves. We've made it a virtue in America. It's just me time. It's just me time. I still remember this is nobody that you would know, nobody connected with Westside Heights, but I never, I've never forgotten this conversation. Somebody explained to me that they didn't go to church last Sunday because they had certain debts to pay, and the debts that they paid above all were debts to themselves. And in fact, folks, I would argue that the Bible is quite insistent that it is in the depravity of our nature to go to great lengths to defend our selfishness and self-interest. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen: the slothful man saith, there is a lion without, I will be slain in the streets. That proverb is repeated twice. A lazy man says, there's a lion in the streets. Our sinful hearts use the logic of our brains to defend our activities. We are, by nature, oriented to ourselves. It is almost beyond any shadow of a doubt, folks, what drove Demas to leave Paul in the lurch. Not a woman, not money, just the sheer self-interest of not being in the spot where the persecution was happening. Is this not the core ideal that is set before the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 31? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. So we have, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 16, that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The problem that we face is that we come into this world living for ourselves. It is the native human condition. It's true of our children. We, we had our, some of our grandchildren over the other night. And they're delightful. <clears throat> and, and we really do enjoy them. And I was just watching the very youngest and I'm thinking two years old, and she's got all the marks of a sinner. I mean, it's just all there. We are inclined to live for ourselves. <clears throat> Do 
to go back to the text, folks, let me just touch on this, right? That he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, since verse number 15 is true, this is, right, verse number 16 is a kind of a complicated argument, and I don't know that I could give you the full explanation of it. But I would point this out to you folks, that Paul is making verse number 16 in light of what he says in verse number 15. Since verse number 15 is true, I no longer do verse number 16. When, wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, and Paul had, he had seen Christ personally, yet now henceforth know we him no more, which probably... Paul is referencing back there to that comment about judging men after the flesh. Back to verse number 12. We commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that we may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. One of the perils of living for oneself is to make the wrong kind, to bring the wrong kind of values to the judgment. This is what the Corinthians were doing. Right? Paul was not a great speaker and Paul was not particularly attractive. And the Corinthians liked attractive, good speakers. And they were following them. Their, what they taught was wrong, but how they looked was right. And Paul said, that's, that's not where we want to be in this. Right? We're, we're not going out of our way to pursue the boring and the unattractive. But we are going out of our way to pursue the truth. And we value the truth regardless of who it is that holds it. So there is the, the problem that we face, folks. I face it. You face it. Our children face it. Our grandchildren face it. To be born as a sinner is to be born selfish. To want to orient all of life to me. To make my fulfillment and my happiness and my contentment and my wealth the supreme objective of life. That is the problem that we all face. For those of us that are saved, however, it is not the position that we occupy. That is the description of an unbeliever. And we, of course, know that we drag that unbeliever around with us everywhere we go, but it is not all that we have. In verses 15 through 21, Paul talks about the position that we enjoy. We no longer live for ourselves, verse number 15, but we live for him who died for us and rose again. And we are able to do this, folks, because we are completely new. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, is really the idea there. He is something that is made all over again. And we will spend the next however many weeks looking at some of the various forms of that newness. God made something new. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
and all things are of God. This is all the work of God. It is not the work of man. It is the work of God. We don't do those things for ourselves. God does them for us. We, we will get to this. This is Paul is talking here about a, a work that is, we, we, we hear the gospel, we respond to the gospel, we believe the gospel, and then God does this work. But God alone does it. And this is what he did, verse number 18. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that we enjoy, folks, is reconciliation or atonement. We are at peace with God and God is at peace with us because of the work of Christ. All things are new. The whole world, the whole orientation changes. And this is the result of verse number 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And then verse number 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He did not count our guilt and sin against us, but he did count Christ's righteousness for us. This is all part of our salvation. This is how it is that all things are new. This is what it means that all things are new. And actually the whole gist, well not the whole, but the, up to verse number 13, folks, we have this collection of encouraging observations about what this means for us. Right? I've kind of turned my attention on the text of verse number 15, but it really is not the main point that Paul has made. He's talking to them about the wonderful benefits that they have as believing people, chapter 5, verse number 1. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, right, typological language for the human body, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Now you just think about what a lost person thinks is going to happen to them when they die. Many people just mistakenly believe and, you know, right up there with unicorns and the tooth fairy, that they're just going to go to heaven. And increasingly, a large number of people believe they're going to be put in a box and buried, and that's the end. But here's what we know. We have another dwelling place. We have another place to live. And it is a place that God has built that is not made with hands. We live in handmade buildings. Here we are. And not only that, Paul goes on in verse number 5 to point out to us that God has given to us the kind of down payment. His spirit. The confirmation of our belief. And biblically, folks, within the realm of the new birth, the presence of the spirit is the absolute non-negotiable of salvation. I mean, here's the reality, folks, that this is true of every single person sitting in this room this morning. It is true of every person, no matter where they are, all seven billion of us in the world. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. 
He's either living inside of you or he's not. That is the great distinction between the lost and the saved. And so then Paul, on the basis of that, points out in verses 6, 7, and 8, our confidence, our encouragement, our boldness in our Christian lives. We have God's spirit. We have a house that God has built for us. Whatever happens to us. This is the position that we occupy. Right? The problem that I face is that I am natively, inherently, and if I could put it this way, irreversibly selfish. But there is a new creature, and that is the position that I occupy. And not only then are we new creations, 517, we are ambassadors, we are representatives, verse number 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. Paul talking about what God has done in verse number 19. How that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And God has given us now a service. That's what the word is referring to. God has given to us a service. God saved us through Christ and gave us this service. We are ambassadors. And it's literally the word elder. Actually, if you want, it's literally the word Presbyterian. And an elder has the idea not only of being the oldest, but by virtue of being the oldest, being the representative. And here's my point, folks. Certainly, 2 Corinthians 5.20 is talking about evangelistic effort, but it is not confined to evangelism. Paul's not doing evangelistic work in 520. Paul's talking to the church. I suppose I'm doing a little bit of evangelistic work this morning in pointing out to you the gospel and the fact that you need to believe the gospel, but primarily I'm talking to the church, those who already received the gospel. Notice how Paul puts it. Now then, we are ambassadors. We are his representatives. As though God did beseech you by us. This is when you speak the word of God to someone, folks. Whether it is a pastor speaking the word of God to a congregation. Or a mother speaking the word of God to a child. It is just as if God himself is speaking. That is why it is so important to get the Bible right. Paul writes, I'm talking to you, church at Corinth, as though God himself were talking to you. And what is his urge to them? Be reconciled. Be reconciled to what? They're saved people. But they have completely tilted towards living out their selfishness in the name of Christ. 
This is demonstrated time and time and time again in the way they conduct themselves. Get on the same page that God is. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him who died for us. Be reconciled. Finally then, the perspective we need, which I've already alluded to. The problem we face, we live for self. The position we enjoy, we're new creatures. And we have all the hope and all the resources that a new creation has, folks. We are not down here helpless. The perspective we need, by my nature, I live for me. It is a never-ending fight. Is it not? Every Sunday, every Sunday, it is the same thing for me. I stand up here, I open God's eternal perfect word. I preach to you God's eternal perfect word. I come up here a sinful man, I leave a sinful man, it never changes. Who is sufficient for these things, said Paul? Who is sufficient for these things? Who is up to the task that lies before us? And this is, I think, what is driving, folks, verse number 9, Paul's sentiment in verse number 9. Since verses 1 through 8 is true, since having been made, I'm kind of reading backwards now, having been made new creatures, we have this confidence that we have the Spirit of God and an eternal dwelling place. Notice how we now live, verse number 9. Notice how we now live. Wherefore we labor, verse 9, that whether present or absent, right? and that's all reading back through verses 1 through 8, whether I'm down here or whether I'm up there, we may be accepted of him. We may be accepted of him. Now again, this is not salvation. Paul is not going, I'm changing my theology and we now work for our salvation. Paul is talking about the fact that we will all face judgment. Everybody, folks, everybody who has ever lived, every man, woman, and child will be judged according to their works. There will be some judgment of our works. So since I have the Spirit, Paul says, And I have this confidence of God's salvation, Paul says. This is how I live. I labor. That we may be accepted of him because, verse number 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to the hath done, whether it be good or bad. And knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so Paul comes and says, Corinthians, I beg you, I beg you. Think about things the way that God does. Think about things the way that God does so that your activities look like the activities God would endorse. And it can be, verse number 11, folks, and I don't think Paul is, right? I mean, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
John, in, in 1 John, I can't remember what chapter, 1 John, Paul, John points out the possibility, folks, that we will not be ashamed at his appearing. So Paul is not presenting a hopeless case here. He's just presenting a potential case. That even though we are saved people and even though we are beloved people, we will give an account to God and it will not necessarily be an exciting, fun, rewarding time. And then Paul points out in verse number 14 that he himself is persuaded of this. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Christ lo- and he's not talking there about how much he loves Jesus, but about how much Jesus loves him. Right? That he is, he is in effect being hugged by God's love for him. And this is because we come to this conclusion, verse 14, that if one died for all, then everybody was dead. Jesus didn't waste his efforts to die for the living. He died for the dead. And he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You can see the way he plays with life and death concepts there. I don't mean toyed with them, but the way he's using them to make the point. He is alive and we were dead. He made us alive. Don't live like you're dead. Don't live like you're dead. And then in verse number 20, Paul himself being persuaded in in verse number 14, he tries to persuade us in verse number 20. I beg you as if God himself were begging you. Again, are they saved? Yes, the people in Corinth are saved. They are called saints, 1 Corinthians 1-2. But they need a lot of work. And they need to change the way that they think. And this is a biblical persuasion. 521. <clears throat> When John the Baptist had his ministry and he went out into the wilderness and he preached and the people flocked to hear this man preach. One of the things that he said about the ministry of Christ was that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Jesus did not come to prune us but he really came to chop us down and to make something new. What did Jesus tell us? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Period. Period. Live for me. This is the demand. Live for me. And one of the reasons, folks, that we come to learn that we need a Savior is because the task of living for him is so very daunting. Overwhelmingly daunting. But we have a Savior who did who did not please himself, but pleased the one who sent him, our substitute and our model. Let's pray. Father.